0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I didn't choose this. It chose me. And I think that is the metaphor for life. You're constantly being prepared for the things that you don't even know are around the corner.
2: Welcome to the Black Business of Broadway, a podcast brought to you by the Broadway League and Black to Broadway. Here, we highlight the stories, how to's, and successes of the Black professionals and legends of Broadway. I'm your host, Janine Scott. Today's guest is Shade Lithcott a Tony and Emmy Award-nominated producer and CEO of Harlem's National Black Theater. National Black Theater is the first revenue-generating black arts complex in the nation and one of the longest-running theaters by a woman of color. Sade is the daughter of Dr. Barbara Ann Tier, the founder of National Black Theater and a champion of African-American arts and culture. In addition to her work at National Black Theater, Shadé also serves as the chair of the Coalition of Theaters of Color and sits on the board of various organizations such as Brooklyn Academy of Music, also known as BAM, Black Genius Foundation, and Art in a Changing America. National Black Theater is one of the producers of Pearly Victorious, which is currently running on Broadway. Welcome Sade, we are excited to have you here with us today.
0: So excited to be here with you, thanks for having me.
2: Absolutely, it it really is a no, it was a no-brainer. You all are are pushing the envelope and uh, we appreciate you and respect Mm. the work that you all are doing. Uh, So with that, I kinda wanna jump right in. Uh, National Black Theater was founded in 1968 by Barbara Antier and a, an award-winning performer, director, visionary entrepreneur and champion of the black arts movement as well as your mother. <laughs> I'd like to you know ask you can you share a little bit about the history of National Black Theatre, your work there and and your overall mission?
0: Yeah so as you said, National Black Theater was founded in 1968 by Dr. Barbara Tier, and you know we are proudly the oldest and, and longest continually run black theater in New York. Um, Dr. Tier founded, you know, Dr. Tier as an artist started on Broadway. Um, she was in several Broadway shows. She was a dance captain. For a musical in the '60s called Kwamana that won um, the Tony for its choreography, and and um, she was really clear about how limited Broadway was in those days from a perspective of limit of um, representation. Not to mention, um, you know, no no speaking of what the diversity or lack thereof was on the producing end and so you know she had a deep desire to be of service to her community and people and so she started a, a small acting school with Robert Hooks um, called um, Group Theater Workshop where Robert and my mother would teach these young incredible actors the craft and Robert Hooks and Douglas Turner Ward would go on and form a uh, the NEC, the Negro Ensemble Company, um, which really was totally focused at complicating uh, the notion of the narratives primarily around um, commercial theater and really pushing the envelope of representation. And for Dr. Teer, she thought representation was just a drop in the bucket, but that Theater is such a catalytic form of art. Storytelling is what shapes the way we relate to each other, the way we relate to our communities, the way we relate to history. History is a story. And that what our people needed was a narrative shift. And so National Black Theater birthed out of like the culmination, you know, the, um, apex of the civil rights movement, 1968, Dr. King assassinated last speech saying, build black institutions, and the black arts movement saying we can, we, we have to pour the kind of love and resources into our own communities and kind of for us, by us, build ourselves up to be who we were truly born to be. And so in 1968, Dr. Tier moved from downtown, uptown to Harlem, founded the National Black Theater. The interesting thing about our founding is she was so commitment to this idea of Black liberation in service of human transformation that um, the company of actors, her first company of actors at National Black Theater were not called actors at all. She felt like um, the audition process that she had endured for a decade or more kind of triggered post-traumatic slave syndrome, if you will, within our um, genetic coding, right? This idea that you're going into these rooms full of white folks that are asking you to smile big, that are asking you to say lines that don't recognize the fullness of your humanity because Back then, in the early 60s, you know, what was available for African-American artists were really a lot of tropes, right? Mm -hmm. Like this trope work of two-dimensional black characters not reflective of black lifestyle. And so that she thought that there was more harm than good in the way the kind of system of theater making worked from a Western paradigm. And so instead of calling her, so she asked the question, what if, you know, This theater making process was in a self-conscious process where we as artists are nervous, scared, go in, will they like me, will they accept me? You know, am I too much of this? Am I too much of that? Smile big, that whole paradigm. She said, what if we change it from something that was triggering and self-conscious, but to something that was God conscious, meaning that within us, we have all of the power and agency that exists in the universe and world. So anyway, the first um, company, all of the actors were called liberators because she was interested in having a very deliberate conversation with liberatory texts, with not representation, but infiltration. So what does it look like to build a black theater company where not only the actors on stage are representative of who we are, but so are the producers, so are the directors, and so on and so forth. So the National Black Theater was born out of this Black liberation, Black empowerment movement that theater could be of service to helping to shift and change our communities and ultimately our country by producing authentic and unapologetic stories of Black lifestyle.
2: Oh my goodness, I, I wish you were here. I'm like, Oh, my goodness, yes. (laughs) Yes, and yes, and yes, yes, and, and, and. So, but, so growing up in, in that environment, was it, was it a no-brainer for you to, you know, pursue a career in this area? Or, you know, was there a particular light bulb moment that you had where it's like, you know what? This is what I want to do.
0: So, Dr. Tira was a, real visionary when um, the company of Liberators started having children, my mother and father included, um, she didn't want to be far from her babies. Mm -hmm. And she also understood that part of the systemic uh, challenge or the systemic uh, issue with um, justice work, which ultimately is the work that we're doing. Um, was that the education system was also equally flawed, um, and so they started a school at the at the theater. So my first education up until I was six years old, and I think my brother till he was nine, was in the theater. So we performed, we toured. You know, we learned how to read, write, and do math, but we also learned about our history, our culture and um, it was like as close to a black utopia as possible, and it's funny because when I think about Harlem in the 70s and the 80s, you know, it's, all of the images are so dystopic, but for me, it was nothing more than the warmest of hugs and the most soulful place on the planet, you know, that one could be, so when um, the theater burned down in 1983 is when we actually matriculated into conventional schools, and I never looked back at theater. And my mom would funnily say, you know, I don't know why I work so hard. It's not like y'all two are gonna do anything with this. And and we were like, you are right, lady. (laughs) And it was kind of that way for me in particular, because I think, you know, as much as my, like Dr. Tier and my mother loved my brother and I, I was very clear that her first child was the theater. She was so dedicated to the mission and the work of the freedom work of storytelling that um, I had a really complicated relationship with the theater and I was pursuing fashion actually. And um, I went to NYU is where I went to college and I did a year abroad. In Italy and I don't know it's funny because when my mom was in college she did a year abroad in Italy and she could not wait to get back to the States. I on the other hand was like oh <laughs> this is where I live I'm doing this like this is a real like uh, wonderful life with wonderful people and I got a call from Woody King Jr. who uh, was producing a Ron Milner play starring um, uh, a a kid he discovered. This is what he was telling me on the phone. Uh, I found this kid, and he's fantastic. And I think you're fantastic. And I want you to do this Ron Milner play called, um, oh, it'll come to me, Um, and I need you to come back to the States. And I was like, um, no, I live in Italy now. Um, (laughs) And he was like, uh, I just think you're both brilliant. And the actor was Chadwick Boseman. And um, starred um, and I played his sister. And anyway, he sent me the script. and it, I started to romanticize, oh, maybe this is my moment. And you know, if anyone knows Woody King Jr., the founder of New Federal Theatre, the King of Black Theatre, when Woody calls you, you go. And so that brought me back to the states to do this play. And it was the first time I came back into theater. <clears throat> and when I tell you, I was terrible. I was like so bad. I was acting like, you know, across from who would become like Black Panther, the goat. And I was just struggling. So, but it brought me back to the States. And, you know, my mother passed away soon thereafter. And from that point on, of when I did, um, the play was called Urban Transitions Loose Blossoms. From that point on, being close to home and really seeing the gaps that existed at NBT, I costume designed for um, NBT because at the time, I was pursuant of fashion. And it was something I could be of service to um, my my mother, primarily, not pursuant of my career. Mm -hmm. So when my mom transitioned and passed away unexpectedly in 2008, the board of directors had asked me to come on board for six months while they kind of headhunted how they were gonna who the next Mm -hmm. head and how they were gonna restructure and I've been here for 15 years so yeah I mean I I, I I didn't choose this it chose me right. and I think that is the metaphor for life you're constantly being prepared for the things that you don't even know are around the corner the first three the first three years were really hard primarily because I didn't realize who my mother was or who what NBT was you know impact wise until she passed away if i'm being honest i remember the first time i really realized what um who the who my mother was and what the national black theater does and what its impact was was when i learned about national black theater at nyu as a junior in college i was like wait what hold on <laughs> this is my mom um oh, that's, oh, that's that's mama yeah and um and like and it's weird when you're the child of two you grow up with all these aunties and uncles that you that you love or you have complicated relationships with and as you navigate and go through you know school oftentimes you learn more about your who's in your living room and who's around your dining room table and so kind of my my aha moment of clicking into like this being my calling and not just the stewarding of Dr. Tear's legacy through the work of National Black Theater was when she passed away, there was a huge outcry from, you know, icons from around the world, from, you know, everywhere, everyone from President Clinton to, um, you know, Maya Angelou, who was her soror, my auntie. And so um, Maya Angelou wrote um, a eulogy to be read at my mother's funeral. Uh, She couldn't she couldn't make it because she was wheelchair-bound at the time, but Avery Brooks read it. Mm. And it was just this beautiful handwritten poem that basically said, you know, hang it, hang up her jersey, nobody can fill her shoes, no one can do what she did, there will be another, there won't be another. And I'm sitting here like steeped in grief and also being like, if my Angelou says you can't do this job, like how am I supposed to, the, the audacity, to do it, and so for the first few years, it was really challenging. I mean, the organization had some had some challenges because we had lo- um, our artistic director had passed away two years before my mother, then my mother, so it was all this transition, and it was when. Auntie Maya passed away. I revisited those words just mm-hmm. to post them on Instagram, and I realized she gave me the key, the aha moment I needed in my own career, and I s- say this story only because I think maybe some of your listeners it will help. It was that in rereading this incredible piece of poetry, what Maya's invitation to me was not to be my mother, yes. right? To bring all of my gifts all of what make me unique for this moment in time to the forefront, that they're not looking for a new founder. I can't be that. But what I can be is a steward of the work that our artists, our community, and the organization needs to take it to the next level and into the future. And so that's when it really clicked for me and I was like, oh, I can run in these lanes.
2: Oh my goodness. The message behind the message behind the message mm-hmm. is is inspiring and I, I am sure that there are other people who will hear that and recognize that I I should not try to be someone else mm-hmm. and I need to be me and I need to be authentically me because the time is right for me to be me. Hello. The universe doesn't need another whoever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like You can't be Angela
0: Bassett. You can't be, you know, like you can't be Kerry Washington because Kerry Washington is busy being Kerry Washington. Right. And so the thing is, God made you unique and special. And that is what your gift is like. It is not the training. You know, training is wonderful. Uh, 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 Credits are wonderful. But the thing that will always resonate in every room is who you are, is the soul of who you are. And and Broadway in particular is desperate. Desperate need of the soul of who we are, because that's what will change the game.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that.
1: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stot or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party. Or a bright Chloe Blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must
0: not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, (sighs) well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility
2: easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So National Black Theater's uh, theory of change is black liberation plus art plus plus placemaking equals human transformation. Why are all of these three ingredients uh, necessary for human transformation to occur?
0: Hmm. Well, you know, there is that saying that, like, none of us are free Mm -hmm. until we're all all free. free. Yes. You know, now we say at MBT, Mm -hmm. none of us are free until the black trans woman Mm -hmm. is free. Yeah. Um, And so the black liberation part of it is that this is freedom work, right? And that if we root in the liberatory transformational force of black liberation... Create the container for our art through the lens of Black liberation, placemaking. Meaning that we have to have a home. Black folks haven't had a home since we were ripped from the shores of Africa. Right? There wasn't one migration period as folks know it in the mm-hmm. you know the 20s through the 40s. It's we've been in perpetual flight. So the placemaking part is the alchemy of saying we can root somewhere. Yeah. We can be recognized and recognize each other. So it's the art, the placemaking, through the lens of uh, black liberation, equals and creates the container for human transformation. Because that is the most soulful like algorithm that we can have, this Freedom work because when you get free, you literally give someone else permission to get free too. Mm -hmm. And human transformation really requires the liberation of all of us, not some of us, all of us. And so, if none of us are free until black folks are free, Mm -hmm. then that is the work of human transformation. That is the work of making not our communities better, but the country better, right? So, so uh, yeah, so that's why it's our theory of change. Um, Dr. Tier had a pedagogy around the science and secret of soul. I know we'll talk about that a little bit later, but you know, it's like the soul of black folks have shaped this country and made it better every step of the way, but we never get the credit for that. And when you are soulful, she used to use the analogy of um, James Brown. She said, you could go anywhere in the world and you go to a concert, James Brown singing, you could be in Japan. Mm-hmm. He hits that note, like Hoo! hit you with a good foot or whatever. And people just start screaming, right? Yeah. It's like, that is his authentic sound and it turns everybody on. Beatles, same thing, right? It's not just black folks. But when you hit that vibration, Every one in earshot is transformed, is you know, turned right. on. And so that is what we, that's the kind of stories we wanna produce. Those are the kind of artists we, we, we support. And so that's why it's our theory of change.
2: Awesome, well, speaking of producing, can you discuss the concept that you all have of holistic producing and how that mm-hmm. influences uh, your approach to producing shows at the National Black Theater?
0: Sure. So, uh, in 2008, when I came on board, um, you know, community theater looks a certain kind of Mm -hmm. way and I think has a certain connotation. Um, but I tell you, it's the thing that I am the most proud of. I say we're a community theater with a capital C and we could also, you know, model certain things and, and borrow other models. So at the time, you know, we didn't have an established season. We didn't have an artistic director. And about three years into my tenure, I um, met Jonathan McCrory, fell in love. We fell in love with each other. He, um, and we've been partners ever since. He's executive artistic director of National Black Theater. And from the two of us coming together, you know, we created a frame. And and I always say, you know, there's this African proverb, if you know the beginning well, the end will not trouble you, and so I, I did not want us to attempt to reimagine or redesign national black theater. I wanted to go back to the beginning, um, and and use the beginning um, years the four for, formative years of national black theater as a blueprint and so what national black theater used to do is it used to go out into community it used to set, perform theater on the street corners it would perform theaters in the churches and in the bars wherever our people were we wanted to be able as artists to reflect their their beauty their image the authenticity of who we are back at them you know and so that is how our theater started through ritual, through um, through community empowerment, not engagement. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, how can we do that through a contemporary lens, where you mm-hmm. meet community where they're at, as opposed to asking community to meet you where you're at? Because, you know, a lot of folks in our communities don't think theater is for them. Right right and 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 we know why because we haven't been really welcomed you know it's like they're like well if it's a cheaper ticket will they come it's like black folks have spend more dollars on i mean how much did we spend on beyonce right like how much do we? we will fly to vegas to see usher Mm -hmm. it is not the discounted ticket it is that you are not empowering us to see these stories that you're choosing to produce so anyway Mm. The roots of holistic producing come from meeting community where they're at. So, it's a three-prong approach to producing. One, we find the play we want to produce, an excellent piece of um, theater that we think speaks to, um, just uh, the the voice of the playwright is 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 soulful, and unleashing that soul on the script. We'll take. Um, the first James Imes piece we ever did, which was Kill Move Paradise. Mm-hmm. We world premiered Kill Move Paradise. Now, when a playwright is being produced by National Black Theater, we don't ask them to be political. We don't ask them to have to have a social justice lens. We, we promise them that we will care for the work in partnership with them, but... They have to allow us to create a dramaturgical lobby exhibit or dramaturgical, you know, deck. Now, when, once COVID happened and started becoming digital, um, that teases out themes um, that are germane to our lives today, right? That are social impact issues that exist in the world of the play. So it's not the dramaturgy of the playwright, but it's the dramaturgy of the world of the play, and those topics are usually the topics that like our communities plural Mm -hmm. are talking about anyway right right? so for kill move paradise even though it was like this surreal um funny house purgatory place it had you know it was rooted in state violence and so the summer of you know killings that summer of 2017 when mike brown was killed Mm -hmm. after trayvon martin was killed like And we, as black folks, had to witness all of this kind of trauma porn, all these murders played out on the television as if it was entertainment on repeat on the news. We decided that that was the season we would would dedicate to black joy because that is what our community needed. Mm. We needed to be in pursuit of black joy, find the healing, and this piece could do that. So our dramaturgical lobby for... Kill Move Paradise was reflective of these converse, the nuanced conversations of like being turned into a hashtag, stealing your humanity after you're being, you know, like all of these things, and so that's the second prong of holistic producing. So we have the play, then we have the dramaturgy that speaks directly to community. So they may not know they want to see a play, but they want to be in this conversation because this is the conversation mm-hmm, they're mm-hmm. having. So they come to us for that. Um, and then they get to see the play, and then after the play, the third part of holistic producing is we have a conversation. We have these afterwards where um, Jonathan and I moderate a talk back with the actors or the um, you know, the director or the playwright if they're present. And we hand the show over to the audience and say, look, we're gonna make a piece of art together, right? Mm -hmm. If theater is ephemeral, then you're sitting shoulder to shoulder with strangers. You're gonna leave here, have a glass of wine maybe, digest in your bubble of familiarity. It's not gonna shift you. There will be no human transformation, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but if we can sit shoulder to shoulder and have a conversation, yeah. bring the dramaturgy into it, bring the play into it, and our own life experiences, then we become more human yes. to each other. We become more connected. We stop being audience members, and we start being community, and that we think is transformational. So that is the secret and the the principles of holistic producing and we do that with every single show we produce um we apply that kind of algorithm to it um because we are in the business of transformation yeah
2: i i totally agree and you mentioned fat ham and we actually had james iams on uh i recorded with him oh last friday so his episode that uh. actually airs right before uh, yours but, and he did, and he talked about uh, uh, Black Theater, uh, National Black Theater. So according to our research, uh, you all made your debut with Fat Hill, with James Innes. And uh, can you talk about um, the importance of Black Theater, in, and we did a little bit of this already, but the importance of Black Theater in these spaces, in particularly Broadway? And what are mm. some of your hopes and dreams moving forward in particularly on Broadway? I, I, and I'm gonna, and I'll say this kind of as a side note, I think having you all behind Fat Ham and behind the mm. Pearly Victorious and whatever else it is that you all are choosing to bring is really transforming mm. commercial theater. And I think it is, and I told James, I was like, I saw, I saw Fat Ham like way too many times because I felt there was, there was a kinder fiction ship. There was an understanding. There was a place of feeling like belonging, not in just watching the dynamics, you know, in what was going on on the stage, but it was also the, the stories that were being told that resonated with me and the environment. As soon as you walk in, it felt like home. And that's mm. odd, you know, mm. in, in, in commercial theater. So, you know, moving forward, what, what, are, what, are, what are your thoughts on, on doing more work mm-hmm. and particularly on Broadway, if you have any?
0: I said that, I, I, I have said that um, producing Fat Ham on Broadway put a fire in my belly mm. to want to do more. Um, because for all the reasons you said, it was so transformational. And it was also very flawed. Yes. And I was just like, yo, right? Like, we should not have made history by bringing Fat Ham to Broadway. Like, National Black Theater in the 150 years of the Great White Way should not have been the third black theater to produce on, to be a producer on Broadway. It, the system is so broken, and everyone... Knows it, right? It's not like I'm saying something that folks don't know and feel and have scar tissue and Receipts to prove it But there is this um, kind of uh, Jazz hands dance that people do around Representation is good enough and it's not like it's Amazing that stories like fat ham are being produced on Broadway strange loop, Mm -hmm. you know Passover, all of these like in you know all of these incredible shows, but when you really break it down, these are developed in white spaces by white producers who enhance it for white audience white commercial majority white commercial audiences. And then at some point they want to sprinkle in black folks somewhere right like, oh, we have one producer who can do community do you know like engagement right and it's like if the most powerful art form on the face of the planet is theater is storytelling and our stories though diversified from you know 60 years ago because Mm -hmm. we have more diverse playwrights Mm -hmm. and directors on broadway still not enough but the system and the lens in which it's being developed and produced and put out there is not your own then what is the what is at the other side of it right like it will feel transactional it won't feel transformational and black folks know when they sit in the theater and they see a comedy that's filled that, that's has black storytelling mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all the audiences are laughing at them and not with them like it is problematic at best. And so that Ham was this amazing opportunity to do things differently. Mm-hmm. And to the, and it was a partnership with the public theater, you know, um, mm-hmm. directed by Sahima Lee, mm-hmm. James Iams play. They met at National Black Theater that Family started in 2017 with Kill Move Paradise, and out of the pandemic, we knew we wanted to do something else together. And so, Fat Ham was that. Um, you know, to the public's credit, I would say that when it was clear that this would transfer, um, we had really hard and uncomfortable conversations about what true equity looks like. Mm-hmm. And again, to the public's credit, You know, we did that dance all the way to Broadway Mm -hmm. and we positioned each other through our value lens, our holistic value lens, which really gave MBT so much agency in the work as it should, because we were 50-50 partners, right? So like um, the sense of agency that like as black folks, we have to understand that our value doesn't lie in the matrix of commercial theater, which is just dollar for dollar. Mm-hmm. Like, What's the kicker that I get mm-hmm. for this thing? Because our currency is different. It's a different vibration. And so that's what really made, I think, Fat Ham a really wonderful and hard-fought success. Um, and we learned a lot on it. and. As a result, to to the point that you made, when our people, our, you know, came into the theater, it felt like their home. They felt recognized. Our company felt cared for. Like Mm -hmm. the idea of radical care as a hallmark of producing in and of itself is audacious, especially in commercial venues. Like care, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. always asking yourself, is this decision a transactional decision or is it transformational? How can we go from transaction to transformation all across the producing way, right? right? And so anyway, that's what Fat Ham was. And you know, being a commercial producer, you started to see all of the gaps that exist that like what we do and how we do what we do can be of service to telling more complex, more impactful uh, black narratives in commercial spaces. So it made so much sense that our sophomore um, uh, Broadway show would be *Pearly Victorious*, yeah. because you know the forefather of black theater of art for activism on stage was Ossie uh, Davis. Yeah and ruby d and so bringing back the revival of pearly victorious um, with the messaging with an incredible cast and a director who's fearless when it comes to the love of not only his people but understanding the togetherness that is essential Mm -hmm. in this moment in time um felt like um, we could be of service as producers on that um piece yeah
2: i love it i love it So you're currently in the process of rebuilding your new home for National Black Theater on Harlem's 125th Street and 5th Ave. Uh, And I'm curious, what is the inspiration behind the redevelopment and what do you Mm. envision when it opens in
0: 2026? Mm. So, uh, Folks thought Dr. Teer was crazy. In the 80s, she started buying real estate in Harlem. And she tried to tell everybody and her grandmother, you should get some of these brownstones, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. They, were, they were selling brownstones for $1 at the time, right? Um oh, okay. And, and so, I know. Yeah, but the folks who could afford, I mean, obviously they had all these stipulations that you had to be able to yes. renovate it, blah, 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 blah. But the point of it was, The folks that could afford or have the vision to afford, um, real estate in Harlem at the time was like, I'm working this hard to get out, not to stay in. You know what I mean? So anyway, in 1983, uh, we were renting space in an old jewelry factory doing, um, doing loft theaters where we were founded, uh, on 125th and fifth Avenue. And in 1983, my Dr. Tear, uh, really felt like the placemaking part was uh, integral to this theory of change. And so she wanted to buy the building. And um, then there was a fire. And she's like, this is an opportunity to buy the block. And folks thought she was crazy that at this, like, burgeoning stage of the organization that she wanted to go from a theater maker, an artist, to an entrepreneur. And she said, "Why wouldn't I buy this city block? It's the most famous uh, address in the world." And people were like, "Oh, now you're really crazy because it's '83. You know, crack cocaine has hit Harlem. We're still reeling from all of the riots that had happened right. um, in the '70s." And she said, "Go anywhere in the world and say Fifth Avenue, and everybody knows New York City. They know opulence, breakfast at Tiffany's. Right. Say 125th Street, and everybody knows uh, Harlem." Mm-hmm which is the cultural capital of the black world. I want to buy the intersection of the two and build the temple of liberation to my people. And she had a vision that she could create an environment, an ecosystem where black artists could live, work, and serve. And so our new project is the actualization, right? Like any of us, Mm -hmm. all we are, are stewards of the unfinished sentence, idea, song, dance yes. of our ancestors, yes. right? Yes. And so the unfinished dream of Dr. Tier, the founder of National Black Theater, was to create an environment where we could come home right. to live, work, and serve. And so that is what we're building. We are building a mixed-use, residential new theater complex, community uh, collision space on the corner of 125th and 5th Avenue. We believe that we're building the theater of the future. What I know in my soul and in my heart and in my spirit is that New York City doesn't need another institution. It doesn't need another venue. Black folks need a home, a home away from home, a place where you meet and greet your family, a place where your exhale feels the best. I'm disinterested in building another institution or empire. We got enough of that in New York City, in Manhattan. What Harlem needs is a home for um, black actors. So that is what we're building. We're excited about it. Um, uh, you know, we will pilot new programming New um, uh, uh, new training programs we have a set shop in the cellar so we'll have like a way for folks to learn how to carpent, uh, to be carpenters, mm-hmm. to learn how to build sets, to get into unions yeah. to really create the ecosystem, the sustainable ecosystem that um, not only gives to the theater field, but really creates opportunities for folks in our own community to, um, to have opportunities in ways that they didn't think existed before. And so, yeah, I think that we're designing this space as a living land acknowledgement to all that have come before us. And as a way to say, like, we don't, we're not asking for a seat at anybody else's table. We're building our own table and you can, you know, pull up a chair. And so that is what the theater of the future will be. And we're very excited about, you know, bringing all of this energy from Batham Ham to Pearly to all of the shows we produce off-Broadway, bring all of that energy back to Harlem in 2026 and really have like the ultimate homecoming. Yeah, uh, yeah. that'll be
2: amazing. So the title mm-hmm. for your 56 theatrical season is called Defiance of Our Bloom. Which is about celebrating the science, soul, and vibrancy of our bloom, preserving in transformation Mm. while acknowledging the struggle that we still face in society today. What was the inspiration behind this theme?
0: Hmm. So, we theme all of our seasons at National Black Theater um, kind of taking the gut, uh, taking like a gut check or a pulse check. Of what um, what's around the corner for us as a people, and for National Black Theater, you know, we're itinerant until 2026, um, and so we're having these conversations, these dramaturgical conversations, in mostly places that don't look like us, right? And so the recognition of our journey our experience in this country is that no matter what the circumstances no matter what we have faced we find a way out of no way to bloom so our art is our bloom and against all odds we will bloom right so this theme of the de- defiance of our bloom is really looking at that push-pull, the audacity to be so black, the audacity to be so great. Like, it's really this idea of all of the shows that we're producing in our 56th season um, are these incredible stories that that are seeds that were planted that folks tried to extinguish in one way or another mm-hmm. and we get to produce them they tried to bury us but they didn't know that we were seeds so it is the bloom that we are celebrating against all odds in the stories that we're telling this season
2: i have one final question Um uh, yes. it is what is one piece of advice you would like to offer to the black future leaders of Broadway? Mm.
0: What a great question. I have kind of two pieces of advice okay. that are com- that are coming to me. The first I will borrow from Dr. Tear, because um, she was asked that question in 1971 in this kind of seminal interview that has become world famous because mm-hmm. Beyonce sampled it on uh, Alien Superstar yes, on the Renaissance yes, album. Yes, yes, yes. And so that, um, that, that talking piece at the end of the song is My Mom, but it's a part of a longer interview that people should look up. And at the end of that interview, um, the interviewer asked the same question mm-hmm. you uh, asked. And she's, uh, her advice, she said to any actor, any producer, any policeman, any school teacher, is to learn to love yourself.
2: Mm.
0: Learn to love yourself. You cannot be who you were born to be. You cannot serve who you were born to serve. You cannot give a gift that you don't love. And when you can start loving yourself, you can start loving you know, the person next to you. You can start pouring that love into your art. And that vibration will change not only your career, it will not only give you a North Star, um, but it will change the world. So learn to love yourself is first piece of advice, but I stole it from Dr. Bob Rand here. (laughs) Second piece of advice is um, I get a lot of questions in interviews about how I do what I do. And sometimes when people tell me back the things that i've accomplished it's the first time it actually sinks in and it goes back to the audacity of blackness um i am fearless fearless i am a courageous not brave courage full of heart right the root of the word i am courageous in all my decision making and in every room I go into. And this is for the advice for other people because we never walk in alone. And that's hard for folks to hear because as you know, practitioners in an industry that is mostly does not look like us, we all know what the experience is when we're the only one. You are never the only one. It's a line in uh, Pearly Victorious. 10,000 Queens of Sheba. Right, You walk into every room with every piece of wisdom of your ancestors, you are constantly surrounded by folks who dreamed you into existence, always. So you're never lonely, you're never alone, you're never isolated, you're never, do not take the bait, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? That is because your crown has been paid for. And as you walk into that room, your responsibility, invisible as it may be, right? Because we are, black folks don't need another job, but it's to hold that door open. But in your courage and your audacity, you are holding the door open for ten thousand folks to come behind you. And so, when we walk into space as the only one, or starting your career with with trepidation, with All that you will face know that you're never alone and that the energy that surrounds you that are your ancestors go to work for you you just have to say the prayer ask the question call on them because energy never gets destroyed, it just changes. So what does that mean? Is that Mm. that walking intention of of your being that got dreamed up hundreds of years ago for you to be here today is still at your fingertips. And it's the reason why I can build a 22-story building and have two shows on Broadway and uh, you know a sample on Beyonce's album and an incredible off-Broadway season world premiering Nikki Douglas's Pray as We Speak because I'm not doing it alone. And none of us are. So
2: that's my advice. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It has been so incredible talking to you. I want to thank our guests and you, our listeners. You could have been doing anything else, but you chose to spend your time with me and I am grateful. Be sure to subscribe at bpn.fm slash BBB so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, tell a friend. I'm your host, Janine Scott, and we at the Broadway League hope you enjoyed this episode of The Black Business of Broadway.